Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to read through verse 28. If you'll notice, verse 28 is actually the start of a new paragraph. I believe you could probably see it as connected to our passage or the passage afterwards. Um, uh, We're going to read it today and consider it with, with our passage, beginning in verse 11. This is God's word given to us for our good. It is inerrant, infallible, inspired. And let us give our attention to its reading. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. Between World War II and today, the church, the the mainstream church in America, which is not to say the mainline church, but really the the majority of churches in America, even evangelical churches, have undergone massive and monumental changes. And that has to do largely with the fact that the world has changed so much since that time. The 20th century was a time when the business world began to understand in huge ways, how to appeal to the consumer and the customer. And at some point, that mindset became part of the church. How are we to appeal to those around us? The 
the uh, hypothetical churchgoer, thinking of him or her as a consumer and a customer. But this has broken with the historic doctrine of the church, fundamental doctrines that have shaped the, the life of the church and the message that it proclaims. Because if the consumer is sovereign, then God is not sovereign. If the customer is always right, then there are times when the customer would, agree, would disagree with God, which would then make God wrong. So we come to today and we see how this mentality still shapes a lot of the practices of the church. There have been movements against this mentality, but you still hear things today like, if you hate sitting in church, then do we have a church for you? If you've never liked church, then give our church a try and we'll show you that our church is the church you want to be a part of. It's driving churches and home groups to scramble to find any way possible to appeal to the churchgoer as consumers. This is Church Marketing 101. Go door to door, ask people who don't go to church, what is it that the church could do to make you want to come? This is what the church Willow Creek did in the 1970s. Of course, uh, they exploded, became huge, and uh, since then, in recent months, have fallen upon very hard times. We must see the kind of violence that this does to the gospel message. When the church thinks of itself as marketing its message and trying to appeal to the consumer. We preach a sovereign God who is authoritative, who calls people to submit to a gospel message in faith and repentance and to leave their personal desires to be sovereign aside and to come and die at the foot of the cross. That is the call of the gospel. The gospel is not something that's there for us to use. We do not come to it like a customer, like a consumer. It commands us to submit to our Lord and our God, and even though saved fully by grace, calls us to live for our Lord. The, one of the great authors who has become a critic of many of these things that we're discussing is David F. Wells. He says this, When we accept Christ, he is not there for our use, but we are there for his service. We commit ourselves to him in a way that we do not commit ourselves to any product. There is a world of difference between the Lord of glory, the incarnate second person of the Godhead, and Alexis, a vacation home, or a trip to the Bahamas. So the gospel is not something that is marketed for the consumption of the world. But there is a certain way that we are called to think about doing business in the marketplace of the world with the grace of God. And that is exactly what this parable teaches for us today. This is not a call to market the church or market the gospel, but rather this parable illustrates the call of Christ to live in total submission to him and to live in total submission to his rule and his reign all of our days. It gives focus to how we understand salvation by grace. You are saved by grace, through faith, completely apart from what you do. And then, as we are saved and renewed, sovereign God calls us to come to the cross and to die, to die to ourselves and to live for him. That is what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. So here's our life-transforming reality. We are, as the saved and renewed people of God, we are called to know that just as Christ rules and reigns in heaven, he is to rule and reign in our hearts, in the church, and even to the ends of the earth that his kingdom might fully and finally come. Just as Jesus Christ rules and reigns in heaven now, so he is to rule and reign in our hearts, in the church, 
and even to the ends of the earth, that his kingdom might fully come. A few main ideas to shape our consideration of this passage. First, the reason for this parable. The reason for this parable. Second, the remote reign of the king. The remote reign of the king. Third, the righteous judgment of the master. And fourth, a reminder of grace. So first, the, re- the reason for this parable. We pick up our story right after the account of Zacchaeus. And if you don't understand the gospel of grace, the story of Zacchaeus is a wonderful place to go. Here you have not just the chief tax collector, but an arch sinner who is accepted by God, accepted by Jesus Christ, filled with great joy, and then transformed and renewed to live unto the glory of God. Remember, he does exactly what the rich young man or the rich ruler could not do. He gives up all that he has. He gives money to the poor, and he pays back fourfold uh, what he has cheated out of the people. This is a wonderful story of grace. And then we come to today's passage where Jesus is then moving on from Jericho, and he's going up to Jerusalem. Jericho, relative to Jerusalem, there would have been a climb to go up to Jerusalem, an ascent. And this uh, gets the people in a certain frame of mind, because we read that they, they think that the kingdom of God is going to come at once. It's going to come immediately. Go up to Jerusalem, it's all going to be triumph, Jesus is going to take the throne, he's going to reign, it's all downhill and coasting from here. Why? Why do the followers of Jesus continually do this? It's it's ironic because, of course, time and time and time again, Jesus has told them, and he's gotten more explicit as the gospel has gone on, that, that when we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be mocked beaten, spit upon, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And yet they cannot understand what Jesus says. And they keep thinking again and again and again that here comes the triumphal ascent of the king to take his throne. We should not perhaps blame the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. They're living on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. We who live on this side of the cross and resurrection, it should be easier for us to see and to grasp and to live into a heavenly mindedness. To say, oh, that's what Jesus was doing. He was saving us from our sins. He was giving us an inheritance in an eternal kingdom that goes beyond the horizons of this world. We we consider what the disciples of Jesus are doing here and we, we look inward. And we realize that Really, we're just as allergic to this teaching of suffering before glory. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer before I'm glorified. I'm going to die before I am exalted. Then he calls his people to do the same thing, not in a way that is saving in and of itself. We, we mirror the suffering of Jesus, suffering before glory, not because what we do is salvific in any way but because God still has a purpose for his people on the earth, that he would glorify his name in so much as we follow in the sufferings of Jesus, follow in his steps. This is what 1 Peter chapter 2 says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The Apostle Paul says, of all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the human heart is allergic to this idea of suffering before glory. And we talk about uh, the market-driven church appealing to people, appealing to the human heart. And is it any wonder, then, that in many places where they claim to preach the gospel, what they actually are preaching is a message that says, if you have enough faith, 
If you believe in the victory of Jesus Christ, he will make you healthy on this earth. He will give you prosperity. He wants you to live an abundant life of worldly pleasures. Whereas the word of God, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have over the world. The disciples of Jesus, the followers, don't get it. And how often, brothers and sisters, do we not get it? So, do we have this heavenly mindedness? This is the reason for the parable. You see, uh, this, this being allergic to suffering before glory, this is why Jesus says this parable. His people can't understand it. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And that doesn't mean that he is a failure. That is the only way that he can accomplish the purpose for which he was sent to this earth. That's the reason for this parable, to confront in us an earthbound mindset, to confront in us how we so often lust after security and ease in this world, and to address our earthbound mindset. That's the reason for the parable. How about the remotely reigning king? Jesus begins by saying there's a nobleman who goes off to a far off land to be crowned king and to return. We have trouble understanding what's going on here because there's, there's a cultural gap that we don't understand. In the Roman Empire, the, the, the far-reaching territories of that empire, there would often be vice kings who were ruling and reigning for Caesar. But in order to be appointed as one of those remotely reigning vice kings... Then, or in a far off territory, you would have to go to Caesar and you would have to appeal to him to be granted the right to rule there. So, for instance, when Herod the Great died, his son Archelaus went to Caesar and said, I, I want to have the same position as my father. But to his surprise, the Jewish people sent a delegation in front of Archelaus to say, We don't want him to rule over us. So a disputation occurs. Ultimately, Caesar decided to let Archelaus rule, but he gave him somewhat of a lower title and and a smaller territory than his father had. So the original audience of the Gospel of Luke would be very familiar with this kind of a thing. Someone leaves their homeland to become king over that homeland, but they need to get permission to reign as vice king. And they would often go, in the Roman Empire, they would always go to Caesar. So that's the context that they would understand. But the deeper truth here is, of course, pointing us to the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. And there are some things that we might not like about this parable when we think about about it relative to Jesus Christ. But that is the truth of this parable. This is Jesus talking about his own reign and his own rule. So when he goes off to a distant country, this nobleman, Jesus is talking about himself. Who, after the cross and the resurrection, is going to ascend into heaven to go and receive the reign and the rule, the name above every other name, from his Father, in a sense going to that far-off land so that one day he will return. I read a couple of commentaries this week that just flat-out rejected that idea because they say later on in the parable the, the, the harshness of the judgments just didn't sound enough like Jesus to them. But that is very clear that Jesus is doing this here in this parable, is pointing to himself. He is the king who goes to reign and to rule in heaven until he comes again. And that reign is to be a glorious comfort to the Christian. He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He reigns as king. He intercedes as priest. He sends forth his word and his spirit as 
our last and our final prophet. He is reigning remotely in a far-off land. We don't see him with our eyes. But this presents to us one of the most powerful questions of this parable. Can you live? Can you live under the reign of the king who rules from his distant land? Can you live under the reign of the king who rules from his distant land? You see how how much our human hearts are are drawn to to notice when authority figures are not present. You know, the days where the boss is not in the office and how production can perhaps stoop. If your experience is anything like mine in elementary school, if the teacher ever had to leave the room and leave the kids unattended for a few minutes, run down to the office or whatever, and you would hear the murmur, start to grow amongst all of the students. And then within a couple minutes, the, everyone's talking loudly and Jimmy and Billy are wrestling in the corner and Johnny's making spitballs. And the, the teacher comes back to realize that the kids are not ready. They're not ready to be left alone. And the question is, can we as God's people, can we live according to the reign of Christ, knowing who he is, knowing that he is reigning on high from heaven, and that one day he will return. The question is, what are we to do? When you say we are to live under the reign of Christ, what is it that we are to do other than generally we understand, we, we, we obey his word, we, we follow the Ten Commandments? What are we to do? Well, this parable talks about that a little bit, and, and that's really the center of this parable. The nobleman calls his servants together. He gives ten of them Ten minus, so one mina each, a very small amount of money, about $20, $25. But he gives that to them, it would be about one-sixtieth of a talent, insignificant amount of money. But the focus is on what he calls them to do. He says, put this money to work, in our translation, or you do business with this money. The King James says, occupy, occupy until I return. Be about the business of the master. That's what he calls his servants to do. By the way, in the parable, when it says that his subjects sent a delegation ahead to say, we don't want you as king, that's not his servants. That's not these ten servants necessarily. It's the people of the land over whom he would reign. So he says to his servants, be about the business uh, that I call you to do. J.C. Ryle says this, Are we occupying? Are we living like men who know to whom they are indebted and to whom they must one day give an account? This is the only life which is worthy of a reasonable human being. If you're saved by grace, by the sovereign God of the universe, you have to square with his call upon your life to come and die, to die to yourself, and to live for him. What is that work that he calls us to do? Well, if he calls us to live according to the reign of that king who reigns from a remote land, who is reigning and ruling in heaven, and who will come back. Really, ultimately, it's to to be a kingdom-minded people who say and who hope in and who pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. We were uh, blessed to be able to hear last Sunday evening about... uh, what it means when we pray, thy kingdom come. And, and our own Reverend Blau uh, highlighted all of those things for us as we looked at the, wor- the words of the catechism. Really, there are three things that shape and form what we are doing when we pray, God, may thy kingdom come. Father, may thy kingdom come. Send forth thy kingdom. Really, three things. The first is this, that his kingdom would come in us. That his kingdom would come in our hearts. 
Secondly, that his kingdom would come in the church, that the church would increase. And then thirdly, that God would destroy the works of the devil and hasten the day of Christ's return. First, when we, when we live hoping that God's kingdom would come, when we live praying that God's kingdom would come, we first think about his kingdom coming in us and our sin and our tendencies to sin be destroyed. Words of the Catechism, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we may submit to you. And this is, this is really the front lines of the, the battle of the Christian life. To live each and every day engaging in the battle of mortifying your sinful flesh. Understanding that as God calls you to live righteously and to die to yourself, that you are called to do battle against your sin. To trust in the grace of God, to trust in the power of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit inside of you. And to do battle against your sin. In other words... Invest the gospel of grace into your own life, into your own life, into your own heart. Invest the minas of grace and apply them to your own life. See who you are in Christ. Rest in your justification. Understand that your position before God is full and it is complete and it is perfect in Christ. And when you rejoice and know and treasure your justification. By God's grace, you will catch yourself being sanctified and living more and more in obedience to him. God, may your kingdom come in me. May I live more and more as a subject of your kingdom, as a servant of you. May you eradicate and mortify my sinful flesh. Secondly, preserve and increase your church. May your kingdom come in your church. This world is full of those who stand alienated from God dead in their sins and their transgressions. The church, and to pray that the church would be a place that would be a hospital for sinners. It would be a place that would exalt the grace of God. It would be a place that is the the school of Christ, where we learn and apply doctrine to our own lives, where the people of God learn to live together with zeal for good works that they might glorify their God in heaven, and even that some of their neighbors might be wooed to Christ partly through those works, that God would use us to be a kingdom-minded people set in the midst of this world, strangers and exiles, different, different from this world in which we live, that we would seek ways and opportunities. Now, certainly we're not all called to do the exact same things in the church, and we're not all going to be trained and polished apologists or speakers, but to seek in God's wisdom how we may speak a word about Christ as he gives opportunity. Just a seasoned word at the right time, pointing to your reliance upon Christ, pointing to your reliance and importance of the church in your life, to seek through God's wisdom how you might speak a word to those who are lost in their sin as the Lord gives opportunity. And finally, that God's kingdom would would come in that he would destroy the works of the devil in this world and he would hasten the day of Christ's return. Now, sin and destruction and hardship, all of those things are going to remain until the day of Christ's return. Jesus is not going to come back to a peaceful world that has been conquered by the church, right? I believe the church will continue to grow and increase. The forces of evil will continue to grow and increase alongside. Jesus will come and eradicate the forces of evil. But even still, there are little glimpses 
of the, the, the forthcoming victory of God in Christ. And we can often be the agents of that kind of victory. So, for instance, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we see that here and there, there can be foretastes as we see God destroy the works of the devil through his power to make the world ready for Christ's return, that that would be our prayer. Jesus, I want to see you again. I I want you to return even more than I want my next breath. I want to see and meet my Savior. I want him to come fully and finally and set up his kingdom. And I want to enjoy eternity with him. So that's the the remote reign of the king. Can we live that way? And can we live as though we know uh, that he is coming again? Uh, Then uh, next we see quickly the righteous judgment of the master. The righteous judgment of the master. He comes back. One of his servants has made ten minas. Another of his servants has made five. And a third has made zero. So we don't hear from all ten servants. We have three representative stories. A large output, a medium output, and no output. So we, 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 look about the, we look at this and we think about what are we supposed to learn from this judgment of the master. Well, first we see that the master gives different rewards to his, to his servants who are going about the work of the kingdom, who are investing the, 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 the minas of grace around them. And certainly we would expect that, right? Someday we will all stand before the Lord. We will give an account to all that we have done, all the deeds in the body. And we will give an account to the things that we have done relative to the call of Christ upon our lives. And some people really want to focus on the fact that uh, one servant receives ten cities and another receives five cities. It was not the point of this parable for us to pry into the, the mysteries of the final judgment. There will be some sense in which it seems as though those who have a different level of devotion, different level of effort in investing grace into the world around them, yes, perhaps they will have an increasing of enjoyment. But really, what we we find as we look at this is first we would be encouraged to always be about the work of the king. That's one thing that this parable teaches us. It encourages us to always be about the work of the king. And secondly, we see the graciousness of the reward given. Ten minas is a very minuscule amount of money. And for the reward to be ten cities, that shows the graciousness of the king. So no matter what you get, when we stand before our Lord, when we stand before our Lord and we give an accounting of our life, when we stand before him, no matter what you get, it will be more than you deserve. No matter what you get, it will be more than you deserve. And then we move then to the servant who did nothing with his mina, who let it sit. And, and, and you feel embarrassed as he said, Master, I kept this mina hidden away in this little cloth, this useless piece of cloth. He's condemned by his own words. And in this we see how disobedient it is not to be about the work that God calls us to do. He calls all of his servants. This isn't a parable that applies only to clergy, only to theologians. This is something that God calls all of his followers, all of Christ's followers to do. We see how disobedient it is to not be about the work that God is doing in the world, to see his kingdom come in our hearts, to to wage war against our sin each and every day, 
to be involved and, and, and pray for and seek to see the increase of the church and to see God destroying the works of the devil, restraining and subduing his enemies, creating this world as a, as a world that is ready to see the return of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the foolishness of not having a living and an active faith. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. And we all have different roles to play. But all believers are called to make this gospel investment. And we're reminded that when we stand before a holy and a sovereign God, there, there will be no other second chances, no more second chances when we stand before a righteous and a holy and a sovereign God. And whatever the Lord's judgment will be, no one will dispute that righteous judgment. No one will say they deserved this or that. For we will all know before whom we stand. And we will know that whatever we could have done, or whatever we did do, we could have done more. So the servants say, as Jesus says, take that mina away from that wicked servant. Give it to the one who has ten. Reminds us that message that we need to hear, that God is a righteous and a holy sovereign. He does as he pleases. All his judgments are right. He operates always with perfect wisdom that sees beyond what we can see. So when he gives more to the one who already has, he is always giving that which is already undeserved. He is the sovereign one, and he does as he pleases. So one day there will be a judgment. We will stand before our king, and we will be saved by grace. We will be saved by the work of the Savior, and yet still as the people of God, we will, we will give an accounting to all that we have done in the body, all that we have done in service to our great Savior. Do we live knowing that even though remote he reigns? Do we live knowing that he will exercise righteous judgment against sin and rebellion? Do we live knowing that our God calls us to invest the gospel of grace into our own lives, that the people who are saved by faith are people who are saved by a living and an active faith, serving our God and living in submission to him. This is a message that's unpalatable to a faith that has been bleached out in marketing ploys. This is not the gospel of the market-driven church. Jesus says, come here and die. Die to yourself. Christ does not say that we assent to the truth of salvation in him and at some kind of window dressing on our lives and then we go back to pursuing our own interests. He calls us to look upon him as supreme, as the Lord, as the one who has a rightful claim upon us. He commands us to live as his citizens. And as we see, the harsh judgment is not just for those who pretended to be his, that, that third servant who was a pretender, Judgment is not just for them, but also for those who said, while he was gone, we reject him as our king. And that is for all who live in this world, saying that whatever they think about Jesus, I know that he is not my king. I know that he is not my Lord. Christ is reigning and ruling as king now. He's my king, he's your king, he's their king. The people of God profess that truth. Other people suppress that truth. He is reigning and he is ruling. He is king. And the question is, will we recognize that kingship? And will we submit to him as Lord of all? Christ is king. 
The beauty of this passage is that even though it deals with the harsh judgments of the righteous master, even still we see how it is couched in the message of grace. We, we can never leave that message of grace. And we always need to understand that even though Christ, as it says in this, in this passage, is, is a hard or a harsh judge, it's always couched in what he is doing for us. So then we see at the end of this passage, as he tells this, this parable, where does he go? He continues to go to Jerusalem because that is why he was sent to earth. To die for sin. To show us that even though he is the Lord, he comes as a servant. Even though high and exalted, he humbles himself to show us how it is that a servant truly lives. He is the one, and he is the only one who can accomplish salvation. That's what we find in verse 28. Does Jesus have the right to give commandments and to make harsh judgments? Absolutely he does. He is Lord. He is Lord. And in in a world where the sovereign self reigns, in a world where the consumer says how it goes, and the customer is always right. We need to hear, we need to hear that he is Lord and he has the right to do all of those things. But none of that can be understood out of the context of his giving of himself to make salvation for us, that we would be saved by grace and through faith. So he continues on his way to the cross. He continues to go and to die for sin, to do that which you and I could never do So when Jesus says, come and die, come and die to yourself, work for me, he's telling us to do that which will always pale in comparison to what he has already done, and that which can only be done in the power of his saving work. So, behold the cross, brothers and sisters. Behold the beauty, the beauty of Jesus' saving work. Come to the foot of the cross, die there. Die there to yourself and live for your Lord. Give up trust in yourself. Never return to it. Never go back to trusting in yourself. Give up all that you have. Live in him and live for him, investing the gospel of grace in your life, in the world around you, all of your days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. You are a righteous and a holy, sovereign God. And we need to hear that message. We need to hear that this world is not here for us to use for our own pleasures, but we are here on this earth to serve you and to find our joy and our satisfaction in you. Shape us and form us unto that calling. Father, if there's anyone here who has never Turn to Christ in faith and repentance. May you make their dead heart live by the power of the Spirit. Breathe the life of grace and transformation into them. Let them see the Lordship and the beauty of Christ. That they may turn from their sin and turn to you. And live in obedience to you all of their days. Praise you and we thank you for this chance to to consider these words. May your truth reign. In Christ's name, amen.